Good morning. Today is April 23, 1995. Today is Environmental Sunday. This is the sermon delivered by the Reverend John Walsh, our senior minister. The lessons are from the Hebrew Scripture this morning. They're from Genesis 1, verse 28, and Genesis 9, verses 1 through 11. The Reverend Walsh's sermon is titled, Caring for Creation. Now, here is the Reverend John Walsh. In his book, of God and Pelicans, A Theology of Reverence for Life. J. McDaniel begins with the word from Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. The question, he writes, of our age is whether such vision will emerge in time to stem the tides of ecological destruction social injustice, and war. On the National Aquarium are carved in stone these words attributed to David Brower. We do not inherit the earth from our fathers. We are borrowing it from our children. Brower writes in his latest book, Let the Mountains Run, let the mountains talk, let the rivers run. A comment on that statement attributed to him. He said, I don't remember saying it, but if I did, I would change it. We're not borrowing from our children. We're stealing from them. And it's not even considered to be a crime. To our unborn children, and grandchildren. It will seem that we did indeed burn books to get light, burn furniture to run our air conditioning, and burn arbors to warm ourselves. For a while, it worked. We did multiply and subdue the earth. Our children will credit us for that, but they must face the reality that the earth is not theirs to subdue, but rather to cherish. They will know what we forgot. There is only one earth. The solution is simple. We must go back to the world's ravaged places and bind up the wounds we have inflicted. We must do our best to restore the natural world to something like it was 200 years ago before we monkey-wrenched nature totally out of control. I believe this to be the most important challenge we face on Earth. Old, worn-out, tired me first thinking won't do it. There is still time even for us to come up with a better answer before the harm becomes irreparable. I agree with Pogo. We have met the enemy and he is us. But I also agree with Pogo when he added sometime later, we are confronted with insurmountable opportunities. 
somewhere, I picked up the staggering statistic. It may not be true, but it sounds horrible. So I use it. In the past 20 years, in the United, the United States has used up more resources than all of the rest of the world in all previous history. Adlai Stevenson put it best 30 years ago. We travel together, passengers on a little spaceship, dependent upon its vulnerable reserves of air and soil, all committed for our safety to its security in place, preserved from annihilation only by the care, the work, and I will say the love we give our fragile craft. Despite 25 years of heightened awareness of global environmental threats, the life-supporting ecosphere of our planet remains gravely and severely threatened, and in some ways, worse than it was on that first Earth Day, April 1970. Let us look freshly at the Genesis account of the world's beginning and the relationship between God, creation, and humanity. In Genesis, the account of God's relationship with creation and humanity's role begins with the creation story in chapter 1 and continues on through that ninth chapter that Dennis read, culminating in the story of Noah and the flood. Recall that following Adam's sin, the ground was cursed, Genesis 3.16, and that after Cain's murder of Abel, he is cursed from the ground, which is no longer fruitful, and is consigned to wander rootlessly in the land of Nod. Obviously, if the story stops there, we have problems for a biblically-based ethic of respect for the earth. And indeed, countless numbers of people of faith, when asked about their responsibility for earth-keeping, respond that after all, God cursed the earth. But in Genesis 5, 29, when Noah is born, the promise of relief from the hard labor resulting from God's curse upon the ground first appears. And it is fulfilled after the flood. The Lord declares, never again will I curse the ground because of humanity. While the earth lasts, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall never cease. So the curse is lifted. The water of the flood purifies and cleanses the earth, and its fruitfulness is promised to humanity. That is how Genesis ends its account of the world's beginning. But another troubling point from the beginning of Genesis is clarified in the account of Noah, the famous or the infamous subdue the earth of Genesis 1, 28. This injunction 
was given to humanity before the fall. And different injunctions to till and keep the earth are given later, in Genesis 2.15. But after the fall, and after the flood, when God, in effect, starts all over with Noah and with Noah's family, God again repeats the command that Dennis read from Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase and fill the earth but left something out. It's not there. The command has changed. Subdue the earth is no longer a part of the formula. Noah is told that animals can become food for him. I give you them all as I once gave you green plants, Genesis 9.3. But the whole troubling sense of harshly subduing the earth is simply no longer present. Thus the story of Noah decisively eliminates any notion that God intends for a fallen humanity to subdue or conquer the earth. Central point, I think, in the story of Noah and the ark, however, is the covenant established by God with living things of every kind. Here is where God's covenant promises first begin. And God's covenant is established not just with people. It is a covenant with all of God's creation. Five times in Genesis 8 and 9, the scope of God's covenant is repeated covenant between God and every living creature with all living things of every kind. God's faithful creative love extends to and includes all that God has made. And the rainbow is a sign of that promise for all creation. From the outset of the biblical account, then, we are cautioned against any view which assumes that the created world is nothing more than the stage on which the drama between God and humanity is intended to take place. The rainbow reminds us that the creation is central to that drama and that the promises given by God are directed not only to humanity but to the creation that upholds all of the cycles of life. The stewardship of our planet is nearly lost because of our alienation from the earth, our hatred toward one another, and our rebellion against our God, the Creator. Abolishing weapons of destruction, eliminating hunger and starvation, and saving the ozone layer are all part of a biblical call to earth-keeping and should be addressed by the church, not as individual political issues, but as indivisible dimensions of our loving response to a loving, creative God. Consider John 3:16. God so loved the world 
The word in Greek is cosmos, meaning the whole created order. This is what God loved so much. Further, John tells us that God sent Jesus into the world to the whole created order, not to judge it, but that through him the world, the cosmos, might be saved. Our Western ears have heard and read this passage always as if world meant people. And when people are saved, they are saved, we have thought, from the world. Our concept of salvation consists of God plucking people up and out of a world headed for destruction like some rescue helicopter sending down a line for drowning passengers on a burning sinking ship to grab onto and be hoisted up out of all of this to safety. But this is not what Jesus says in John's third chapter. Rather, he has been sent by God to save the cosmos, the world, the entire creation. Salvation means saving the ship. Our difficulty stems from thinking that humanity exists apart from and independent of the rest of the created order. By thinking of humanity as separate from the rest of creation, we assume we can be saved while creation is being destroyed. Further, we think of salvation as a spiritual reality divorced from physical reality. Our souls are saved while our bodies are destroyed. Redemption promises that God's intentions for the creation will be fulfilled. The people of God have continually been given this promise which lies in the future as a means of judging their action in the present and calling us to faithful obedience to the Word of God. The covenant with creation given to Noah is restated and reformulated throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and culminates in the life and work and teachings of Jesus Christ. The holistic nature of this covenant promise is powerfully presented in the Hebrew Scripture in Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I will make a covenant on behalf of Israel with the wild beasts, the birds of the air, and things that creep on the earth, and I will break bow and sword and weapons of war and sweep them off the earth so that all living creatures may lie down without fear. I will betroth you to myself forever, betroth you in lawful wedlock with unfailing devotion and love. I will betroth you to myself to have and to hold, and you shall know the Lord. And at that time I will give answer, says the Lord. I will answer for the heavens, and they will answer for the earth, and the earth will answer for the corn, the new wine, and the oil, and they will answer for Jezreel. Israel shall be my new sowing in the land, 
and I will show love to the unloved and say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, thou art my God. Don't mess with it. In, Israel, in, in Isaiah 11, the promise of a restored relationship with God, God's people, and the creation includes even a new peace within the world of nature where the lion lies down with the lamb. And at the end of Isaiah, at the end of third Isaiah, the Lord declares, for behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. This newness is described as the absence of oppression and exploitation. People shall build houses and live to inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build for others to inhabit, nor plant for others to eat. The fruits of creation liberate the oppressed and serve the needs not of some of the people, of all. This new work of God is inaugurated in Jesus Christ. He announced the coming of the kingdom of God. Followers are called to accept this new reign of God in their lives and to expect it and work for it in the world. This world. Our prayer is for this kingdom to come, God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those whose lives become incorporated into Christ discover this new creation as a present in breaking reality. Paul writes, for anyone who is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old creation has gone and now the new one is here. It is all God's work. The new creation as described in this passage is not internal but external. That which divided Jew and Greek slave and free, male and female, has been overcome. And that which drove the creation away from God has been defeated. The world has been reconciled to God. The cosmos has been reconciled to God through Christ. Though we know this by faith at present, its actual consummation comes in the future. Revelation 5:13 describes this in part as follows. Then I heard every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the heaven and in the sea, all that is in them saying, praise and honor, glory and might to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever, world without end. Revelation 22, describing the new heavens and the new, new earth says, then he showed me the river of the water of life sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city street. On either side of the flowing river stood a tree of life which yields 12 crops of fruit, one for each month of the year. Many believe all this to happen only in a future millennial era. Until then, things can and will only get worse. And the worse they get, the more excited these Christians seem to become, anticipating that the end is near. The logical consequence, in Tom Sine's words, would be to torpedo the grain boats so more people will starve quickly. 
or to change the metaphor, let's go ahead and deplete the ozone layer. It only brings the end nearer. But the Bible suggests that this new creation has already begun, both in our lives and in the whole created order. And just as the redemption of our lives is to promote the work of sanctification, transforming our lives into the life of Christ, so the redemption of the creation should promote works of sanctifying the earth, transforming it through the sovereignty of Christ. This new creation comes through judgment. The pattern is not gradual, upward, evolutionary ascent to the omega point. Rather, it is death and resurrection. The old is judged and defeated in order for the new to come and be born. And any survey of the contemporary perils facing the creation demonstrates how much of the old, the power of death, must die. Yet the God who makes all things new does not sit back and delight in watching a cosmic crescendo of evil, and neither should we. God has already begun the new creation, and we are called to the work of global sanctification in that process. Listen to the words of a 12-year-old child speaking in 1992 in Rio at the Earth Summit. Hello, I'm Severin. I'm afraid to go out in the sun now because of the holes in the ozone. I'm afraid to breathe the air because I don't know what chemicals are in it. I used to go fishing with my dad until just a few years ago when we found the fish full of cancers. And now we hear about animals and plants becoming extinct every day, vanishing forever. In my life, I have dreamed of seeing the great herds of wild animals, jungles and rainforests full of birds and butterflies. But now I wonder if they will even exist for my children to see. Did you have to worry about these things when you were 12? All this happened, she wrote, before our eyes, and yet we act as if we have all the time we want and all the solutions. I'm only a child, and I don't have all the solutions, and I want you to know you don't either. You don't know how to fix the holes in the ozone layer. You don't know how to bring salmon back up a dead stream. You don't know, and you can't bring back the forest that once grew where there is now desert. If you don't know how to fix it, would you please stop breaking it? At school, she wrote, even in kindergarten, you teach us to behave in the world. You teach us not to fight with others, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess, not to hurt other creatures, to share and not be greedy. Why do you go out and do the things you tell us not to do? Parents should be able to comfort their children by saying, everything's going to be all right. Or, we're doing the best we can. Or, it's not the end of the world. But she says, I don't think any one of you can say any of that ever again. Not to not to any child. My dad says, you are what you do, not what you say. 
Well, what you do makes me cry at night. You grown-ups say you love us, all of us children, all of the children of the world. I challenge you, please, make your actions for once reflect your words. Learn to hear music, my friends, of the earth. Like the sound of a small stream, like a canyon wren trilling down the scale and counterpoint. You can damn the stream, it's our choice. And if we dare, we can quell the music of the bird. But ask yourself what your grandchildren will ask of you. Tell me, what was it like? Tell me, what was it like, the music? Of the earth. This tape was produced and distributed by the volunteer staff of the Media Library of the Myers Park Baptist Church in Charlotte.